Incoming transmission from Pod Fleet Command on screen. Welcome to the fourth episode of Trek Geeks Picard Live. My name is Barry DeFord, and I will be your inner light of remembrance while we look back at what the episode was that was titled Absolute Candor. If the internet drops, I have my reliable EBH to help, and thankfully, he looks nothing like me. That is the lovely and talented Mr. Dan uh, Garcia, who is running the show from behind, which is wonderful and grand, and uh, we are very happy to have him. He's also found on Trek Geeks Game Night, so check that out, too. This broadcast is streaming on live on YouTube and Facebook, and is now is also on trekgeeks.com. So if you don't catch the live broadcast, you can always check out the um, lovely and talented Mr. Bill Smith, who throws that onto the feed on our podcast settings as well. So check us out on your favorite podcast medium of choice. Picard Live is proud to have Fansets as our presenting sponsor, and we'll have some more information about them later, including a guest special, or sorry, including a special discount code just for our viewers of this broadcast. So I want to start right off the bat. We are diving into episode four. So spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. So this podcast episode will be talking about specific character developments and plot points from episode four of Star Trek Picard, and there will be spoilers. So if you haven't seen Absolute Candor, please stop now so that you don't have the episode ruined for you. Now, we always have our different segments in this show of Picard Live. We always start with the Picard Maneuver. We then go on to No Pips, No Problem, and the Stargazer, followed by some supplementals. So to start off in the Picard Maneuver, we'd like to get ourselves oriented with the man that we haven't seen in over 20 years. So this first segment, let's straighten it out with what we just saw with the Picard Maneuver. So I am super excited, first of all, to be seeing some familiar faces, both in front of and behind the scenes. Of course, Mr. Jonathan Frakes, getting to see ready involvement from Jonathan Frakes is, for me, a massive vote of confidence. We have seen elaborations and contributions uh, in different elements of Star Trek from the actors and the writers, Ron D. Moore and Michael Dorn for the Klingons, Leonard Nimoy, uh, Jolene Blalock for the Vulcans. I am very excited to see Jonathan Frakes as a part of the formation of the Romulans. I know he wasn't necessarily on the writing staff, but him directing it really does get that Star Trek feel. And this was very much a, a Frakesian episode. I could definitely catch bits of, uh, of his handiwork in and out throughout. So that was wonderful to see Mr. Frakes. So just starting off, that was great. So we start off the episode with another 14-year-ago flashback, and this is on the uh, planet of Vashti, where we get to meet um, Picard's uh, first group of Romulans who have managed to get away from the gigantic supernova. So though it is good to see that there are more rescues that took place, to pull out of an ongoing rescue, I would say, is pretty horrifying. Now that we understand that Starfleet was in the midst of a rescue, um, I know Mars was attacked, and therefore there was a massive loss of ships. But as John said last week, I feel like that an interplanetary flotilla, um, and I mean, even if there was 14 planets who were conscientious objecti uh, objectives, uh, bleh, 
objectors, I believe they probably would have been able to get this sorted out. Um, and it would have still been somewhat of a success. So this actually does really show me even more the fact that there is definitely something fishy happening here. We get to meet um, the brand new uh, group of warrior ninja monks, uh, and they are very, very cool. And I have completely lost on my notes where their name is. So uh, someone in the comments, please hook a, hook a berry up with the name of the uh, group of Romulans, because I'm not going to do a Google search in front of you all. But uh, long and short of it, you know, we we get to see a displaced people, perhaps even forgotten people, in in a very large, large event that you know really does change everything in their society. And the Federation has, in this respect, done absolutely um, less than nothing in a lot of cases, and it is. Um, I think in a lot of cases, and it puts so quite right to be um, very upset. I mean, seeing him, uh, seeing him come up, come apart, apart when he returns later in championship a bit is uh, is important, and I think it's important that he he feels that loss. We also get a chance to see Picard's new crew uh, getting a uh, a bit of a fill in. Oh, one second here, Mister Thad Hate has come to my rescue. The Quat Milat. Thank you very much that you are a poet and a scholar. And uh, for those of you listening, I just did the uh, Quat uh, 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 Milat greeting. Oh, Chris Hackney also brought that up. So thank you very much as well. You both are superstars and get uh, uh, episode savior of the of the episode or something like that. Anyways, back to the new crew. I'm so excited to see uh, Rios developing even more and even more as he gets, uh, uh, as he as he starts to form himself, he becomes more and more people. And it's kind of neat seeing a bit of a, a personality conflict with himself manifested through the AI of the ship. But also I'm noticing that there's something possibly between Gerardi and Rios, which could be interesting. Um, I had trouble pinpointing actually what Gerardi's intentions were with Rios when she came out and said she did all of her work and then went on to water plants and such. And I would say that maybe talking about one's parents uh, is in my estimation, not particularly an effective way to get someone's romantic interests. Just saying also, it would appear, as I said earlier, that Rios has enough relationships with himself. I'm finding it interesting that he finds it necessary to make all of the emergency auxiliary holograms look like him. I just feel like that's the worst possible choice that he could have made. But I guess that's uh, something in the story that will continue and grow, I'll reckon, from there. So I do think that's um, kind of a fascinating bit on, uh, on Rios. Part of me even wonders if maybe he's a hologram. I don't know. Um, but uh, that's yet to be said and yet to be understood. We uh, find ourselves on the artifact. Narek uh, seems to be over his head a little bit. He's kind of pinballing his way through uh, his secret um, clandestine operation of love with Soji. And I do find it interesting how he is, is actually just, I think he's just a little smitten with uh, this, uh, as I think his sister said, uh, his little robot girlfriend. Um, we also learned that uh, not even beings like the Borg can resist a slip and slide. I think that's pretty great. Seriously, though, I'd pay money to see a reshoot of the rock and roll bit from Risky Business, um, except performed by a Borg. I think that would be pretty entertaining. And I also do have to say, though, that 
right now in terms of Narek, Soji's fascination with the Romulan crew who was assimilated is a little more interesting to me. Of course, we've got that sort of lore-based, you know, the, the, the little triangular Romulan fortune-telling cards and everything coming into play. I do see a marrying of uh, technology and spirituality uh, being explored, which is always great to see in Star Trek. So I think Narek is a character. I think we're going to see he's kind of revving his engine still a bit, and he'll become more important in time. But right now, I think he has yet to steer himself or be steered in a specific direction. I do like how Soji is just continuing to dig. And uh, I do like that Narek says that he, you know, he, he notes that in her, and I think that's what he likes in her. We do end up back on Vashti. Uh, nobody seems happy to see uh, Picard very much coming back. And I would say that's pretty pretty on the nose and pretty actual. Like, I mean, why would anyone be happy to see a human? There's also a lot of xenophobia that started to uh, creep up. And that, I think, has a lot to do with the dislodged planet out of orbit kind of feel that we're getting from the Romulan society as it exists post-supernova. So... Last little bit of the Picard maneuver before I welcome our guest on, I just want to talk a bit about Elnor himself. I think there's definitely a struggle with patriarchy in this uh, in this manifestation of Romulan society on, on uh, Vashti. They call him sister brother a lot. And I would really like to see that phrase get turned into a positive, you know, kind of like how uh, a suffragette gets turned around from a derogatory to an empowering uh, name. I think that would be kind of interesting. And I appreciate the premise of his character and I find it sort of relatable. I myself actually, just a, a bit about me, uh, I grew up uh, with a lot of very strong women in my life and I'm the man I am because of it. And I believe that masculinity can be nurtured and expressed in positive ways, uh, just in how it manifests in, in men and women, just as femininity does as well. So I think it's careful territory, but the Picard writers could make some pretty neat gains in terms of advancing social issues that are contemporary, like Star Trek is known to. Maybe in time, laying the groundwork for a fully actualized character, say a trans character, um, that would need no padding to their story. I know, uh, I know Dax definitely sort of dipped its toe into that kind of world but i would really like to see something even greater uh come up with that i remember uh one time i was on an episode of uh, brandon metalla's show warp five with uh, dan Devi. he's the host of gaze in space and dan mentioned something i think would be wonderful to have a few characters in the star trek universe who were trans but one who didn't decide to transition um and then just remain actualized as the person they are completely i think that would be super neat um to see that kind of grow and uh, become a thing possibly so that's my thoughts on uh, elnor i think he's a really interesting character if a bit sprightly and possessing a sort of killer innocence so that's the initial part of the Picard maneuver, just in a nutshell. And I'm really glad to see everybody up uh, up here. This is uh, great to see everyone coming on and commenting and everything. And I'm looking forward to uh, engaging with you folks. So if you've heard some things, uh, we can go. I just want to bring one thing up about Narek. I think that's a really good one. Chris Hackney says he's going to be the Theon Greyjoy of Picard. That's on the nose, and I think you're kind of correct there. He's definitely coming off as something of a Greyjoy. Um, very well put. Uh, I like that a lot. So I think I should bring forward a man who needs no introduction whatsoever. I have Mr. Bill Smith of the, um, what's it called, uh, Trek Geeks podcast on the show. Bill, how you doing? Uh, I'm great, Barry. Uh, thank you very much for having me. It's, uh, it's great to be on uh, this show, your show. 
um, that I may have heard of before, allegedly. Allegedly, allegedly, it's not like you've you've been so extremely instrumental in helping me out getting this thing going. So, mad props to you, my good friend. So, first of all, I've I rattled through a number of things on the Picard maneuver. Is there anything you want to address before I start asking you some some heady questions? I'm a little concerned that uh, th- that he could turn into the Theon Greyjoy of of uh of picard uh, especially knowing what happens to theon Greyjoy, i'm just going to throw that out there uh reek anybody (laughs) yeah no i i do i do hope and but i mean at the same time his sister is stone cold you can tell she does not care um that is a very gross thing to think of but yes no you're right i think he could end up getting steamrolled pretty badly um one thing cool that i just want to bring up as uh, our listeners are, are on and watchers are on sunday april 26th at the bank new hampshire stage in concord uh, new hampshire you guys will be live kind of like i'm live right now so i it's like i'm lacing the track and you guys get to lock the flow this is amazing. I didn't know you were going to pop into a, undo a plug for Trek Geeks Live. We will. We're doing a, a live uh, podcast recording of Trek Geeks to benefit uh, a local charity called Grand Estate Dog Recovery. All proceeds nice. from the night are going toward that. Um, and it's a it's a live uh, part kind of TED Talk, part live podcast recording. And then uh, there will be an outtake at the end. And by outtake, I mean brief musical uh, number. So um tickets available at trekgeekslive.com uh i think they're ten dollars now twelve dollars at the door but it's going to be a, it's going to be a fun night i need to get to the east coast somehow <laughs> the live musical number are you crazy that's awesome uh it's 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 going to be different we've never done anything like it before and uh and and we're excited i actually i have to i have to learn the ukulele in order to do this and pull it off <laughs> okay well i'm excited to hear that well I want to talk to you specifically about Romulan society tonight and the idea of this absolute candor. So am I right in my thought that you find Vulcan culture particularly fascinating? I was it in your your Trek profiles or somewhere along the line? I got the idea that you liked Vulcan society specifically. It it might actually just been from seeing you in a scant uh, as a Vulcan (laughs) a few years back. So, I mean, there's things you can't unsee. So maybe that's where I'm getting it to. So Vulcan logic, are you, am I out to lunch on this or are you a particular fan of it? You're not, you're not out to lunch at all. In fact, I I do have a a soft spot in my heart for the Romulan simply because they are just guile and deceit every time they're on screen. Um, I actually (laughs) appreciate both societies, not necessarily in the positive sense, but, uh, but I, I do have a fondness for Vulcans and I, I do kind of love the Romulans. We're not going to lie. Okay. So in terms of absolute candor, the first thing I need to ask is when is CBS going to be getting you and Dan Davidson on as consultants for absolute candor? Because, you know, you guys <laughs> kind of just stream of consciousness your way through hundreds of episodes of Star Trek of Trek geeks. I, I don't see that ever happening. I, I don't, I think CBS would probably be in rough, rough situation if they ever called on Dan and me for anything. Um, <laughs> well, that, that would show you how low the bar had sunk at that point. And since uh, they are doing pretty well, they they certainly have no need for for us two idiots. We two idiots. Okay. Okay. So then then what parallels, pitfalls, and potentials do you see in the ethos? And for those of you uh, watching on YouTube and on uh, Facebook and on TrekGeeks.com, please, please get in on this. Um, I'm going to keep my eye on. Uh, uh, Dan Garcia will uh, keep a, an eye out as well for any any good comments and stuff like that. Because I want to know, what do we think about this new ethos? Because it harkens 
a little bit to me of the difference between liberalism and libertarianism, where sort of liberals believe in a outright rule of law that upholds liberty, and then the other that kind of believes in a, you know, liberty only achieved through the removal of kind of bureaucratic law. I mean, both have serious pitfalls and potentials, but if Star Trek has its relation to the American slash United Nations constitutions, I mean, we have libertarians and liberals in both of those um, founding documents. You know, you can kind of look at Jefferson versus Hamilton or something like that. Not to not to politrex the crap out of this too much, but um, yeah. What do you think in terms of this new ethos? Is it is it going to have a lot of staying power, or do you think they're kind of digging themselves a little hole here? Well, I, I think there's a reason why this is a, a presumably a small sect that believes in absolute candor. I mean, it's not Romulan culture in general because this runs afoul of everything Romulans have ever demonstrated in Star Trek. So it's clearly these ninja nuns, uh, as I've taken to calling <laughs> them, that that believe in this doctrine of absolute candor. I believe that they were probably, um, you know, a a group or a, a a sect that lived in fear of the Romulan Empire to some extent. Because, I mean, you know, you either towed the... the, the towed the line of what the Romulan government wanted you to say and do as a good Romulan, or you were, you know, dealt with summarily. So uh, perhaps they are more free to demonstrate this absolute candor in this, in this environment, um, as, as, as ill-fitting as it may seem, but, um, it allows them to be who they are. Uh, and, and I'm kind of fascinated by that. Whereas I don't know if they would have been able to do it as openly on Romulus. Yeah, I, I would agree with you in the sense that they seem at odds with the rest of Romulan society. And I wonder to some degree if they are some kind of proto offshoot of logic in the sense that I think both extreme logic and extreme candor or absolute candor requires a fair amount of emotional fortitude. You, In both senses, you're going to need to kind of have uh, a pretty good understanding of who you are and what your relationships are uh, to be able to be so incredibly open with a person or to be so incredibly sort of, um, uh, I guess, reserved um, in that respect. Would you, I don't know if you'd see something kind of like that in the sense that maybe absolute candor and the logic of the Vulcans actually might have some connective tissue with one another. I think they do to some extent. I mean, you, you think about it, you know, Vulcans have a reputation in, in Star Trek for not lying or not ever lying, which in a sense is, is absolute candor to some extent. Um, mm -hmm. Perhaps not to the extent that, the, that they demonstrated in this, in this group. But I, I think that there is, like you say, some connective tissue there. Um, but then, I mean, then we're forced to ask the question, well, what society actually ever tells the truth 100% of the time? Um, yeah. you know, is it possible? And I think that's a, that's another question you know, that, that, that yeah. probably should be taken up at a different time because we could go on with that one for hours and hours. Yeah, I agree. And, and just to maybe kind of put at the end of it is, is I do think that we are dealing maybe with, uh, uh, absolute candor on certain social media platforms out there where people say what they feel immediately without thinking about what they're saying. But speaking of people who have said some really good things, I'm going to start here with, uh, Debbie Smart Multisanti, who says, I love the Picard is showing a depth to the Romulans. Fans have always complained that they are the species that left, um, that left is that one note song and you're absolutely absolutely right debbie this is fantastic to really start to dig into romulan culture i've wanted this for a really long time and so bill you said you've always kind of liked them as the sort of um you know ever baddie do you see something um more here uh, as being beneficial 
Oh yeah, absolutely. We figure in next gen, the Romulans were always, Hey, we're going to do something bad next time we see you. And then we'd see them again. And they'd be like, we're going to do something bad. The next time we see you, don't let us catch you here again. And they'd continue (laughs) to do that. So it was the constant, you know, just you wait till your father gets home kind of deal. But I agree with Debbie 100%. Hi, Debbie, by the way. Yeah. Hi, Debbie. Um, We just moving down here. uh, Becky 20 Tenable says today, I still say that these nuns are like the medieval knights and Elnor is a king arthur knight i do like that idea that i that elnor could potentially play some kind of unifying or reimagining role with the romulans and you know maybe even usher in a sort of non um you know hyper hierarchical hyper militaristic romulan society one that's a lot more holistic and everything like that um this is actually a stargazer thing where we look ahead but i am just going to bring this up because it is right now do you see some of the cultural attachments that um, that uh, um, Elnor has to Picard coming forward. Do you think he is actually going to play something of like a D'Artagnan character? If you're familiar with the Three Musketeers, um, to some extent. I mean, um, I'm I've read it ages ago, and I've seen I think any one of a dozen of movie adaptations, or at least it seems like a dozen. I think there is something to that. I mean, um, I, I think what I like at the beginning of this episode is that Picard has a rather sort of avuncular relationship with with Elnor, and I think that they had to create that at the beginning in order to understand why Picard would want to go back there to have Elnor bind his sword to the quest, um, yeah. which seems like a weird thing to say in Star Trek, but um, it, it he does seem a little D'Artagnan-like. Um, I, I do think that he's going to play a greater role than perhaps anybody realizes, um, especially since now we s- seem to be uncovering all kinds of groups within Romulan, you know, substrata, all over the place, but there's the Tal Shiar, there's the Jat Vash, there's now the, the Kuat Milat. Um, it makes yeah. me wonder what group we're going to discover next week, because it sounds like they had a bunch of gangs in, you know, in, in the Romulan capital city. That's what it sounds yeah. like at this point. Well, and it's factional. It's feudalistic in yeah. a lot of cases. And and I think that, you know, the Klingons have really sort of shown themselves to be like the proper feudalistic, you know, kind of group. And I would be, I, I've, I have in the past related the Klingons to the samurai. And I know we're getting probably a bit of a samurai vibe from the, um, from the Kualat Milat, but I would actually instead consider them more like the, the warriors of Crete or maybe the Devshirma of the Ottoman empire. But that's again, maybe a little more delving deep into the, the minutiae. Um, Arend, uh, nice to see you again, Arend. Always love getting your comments in here. Uh, he says, we seem to get a small sliver of alien cultures to drive the pol- plot along. How much Romulan culture outside of the military has been seen in Trek? Well, yeah, that's it. Like, barely anything. I think, you know, obviously unification and unification too. We get to see that they they serve soup. Um, that was my big takeaway, soup. I like and then, soup. Um, yeah. And then, I mean, face of the enemy, you definitely get some, you know, you, who eats at what table and you learn a little bit about food and stuff like that. So, you know, just kind of like a, a little behind enemy lines kind of thing. But no, I, this is this is brand new ground. We are boldly going for darn sure there. No, I agree with you 100 percent. It's it's nice to see something more than the the proletariat in Romulan culture because yeah. that's really what it boils down to. I hate to go all politrex because uh, I you know I feel like I have to <laughs> level up a little bit because Dan's not here although Dan's watching. Um, uh, you know I, I feel like I, I mean to, oh Joel and True Dan Joel yeah, and True <laughs> Joel and True. I feel like I have to uh, I, I feel like I have to try to sound smart even though I'm not really. So it's funny. Yeah. I want to go back to something you mentioned just a bit ago. Uh, you talked about yeah. being raised by strong women and I I of course was raised by. 
uh, a strong woman. I had five sisters that I grew up with and I can completely understand, you know, where Elnor is at this point in his life. You know, he's, he can't ever be, you know, the, the sort of defender and assassin they've trained him to be because he's not a woman. And I think that is a fantastic aspect of this particular culture. Um, I, I, I look forward to learning more about Elnor um, and, and where he goes on this journey with Picard. I look forward to their relationship growing. Yeah. And I think that actually transitions us really well into our next segment, which is called no pips, no problem. Bill, you're welcome to remain on if you want to sure. uh, just, just sort of riff off of the things that I'm going to say. So we're starting with no pips, no problem. And then this, of course, Picard no longer has any attachment to Starfleet in any sort of formal sense, I guess philosophical for sure. But uh, we get to see how he acts when the Federation is no longer going to be dictating things. So I think before we get into my, my actual list, I do want to talk a bit about the father figure nature that Picard has with so many different people. And I think maybe just maybe we're going to see Picard wanting to be a father of Elnor instead of sort of begrudgingly allow himself to his scolding at the end there really, I was like, oh, okay, you know, that wasn't a captain that sounded more like a dad. Um, and, and I thought that was pretty cool. I agree with you. You know, it was interesting to see their relationship at the beginning, you know, where Elnor expected that, that Picard was going to bring him something just because he was coming to visit. You know, he's like that, that uncle that comes to visit and, and, you know, spends time with the family and, you know, you get to play with him and read with him and all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I, I think the relationship that Picard developed with Elnor is one that he had wished he developed in his own life, perhaps yeah. with a child of his own or with his nephew, Rene, before he died in that ridiculous fire and generations off screen yeah so. yeah yeah and then i mean i'm gonna kind of shift without the clutch here but also seeing picard acting on a ship when he can't be captain is is a new fresh hell for him and i think it's a delight um the crew i i do have to say uh the autonomous the crew themselves and the fact that captain is or picard is not the captain he used to be i mean this group of misfits and really and truly they are they are a far cry from anything um you know everyone sort of has a bit of an affiliation to starfleet or the federation but not in any organized manner I, and i find picard can't help calling the shots but i do think rios likes it and I, I just that second time Picard makes a command on the bridge. I think Rios would have given jail the boot the second time, but he didn't also another little piece here. Um, Picard got a nickname since nemesis. And I don't really know what the fuss is about. Um, did you know that there are entire cultures where people and individuals uh, have name changes as they enter and exit phases and relationships in their lives? So um, I don't know really what to say there other than I was in a band with a dude named John Paul. We called him JP and his guitar had an iridescent snakeskin paint job. So I think that hyphenating French double names just purely makes you a badass, right? Well, here's the thing. I mean, and, and Dan brought this up to me one day at work. You know, in the best of both worlds, Picard is sitting there talking to Admiral Hanson about Commander Shelby, and he refers to him, his superior officer, as JP. And, you know, the fact that Rafi refers to Picard as JL just shows that they have developed a very close relationship over time. You know, that that their their relationship is more than just superior and subordinate. It says something of of their friendship to some extent. And I think that the first three episodes, knowing how Picard let her down, says even more. So I don't know why people are fussing over that. If Picard doesn't care, we shouldn't care. 
No, absolutely not. So one other thing, though, in in that, in the no pips, no problem sort of spirit of things, we've got two dislodged Starfleet officers. We've got a captain, as I said, who needs a crew or, you know, who needs a crew. And we've got a crewman who seems to need a captain. Am I wrong in saying that Rios might like a little bit of that, you know, on screen and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, shields up and all that sort of stuff? I, I could see him kind of bouncing up and down in his seat there a little bit. Well, you know, in that uh, that one scene in the episode prior, you know, where one of the holograms is saying, you know, look, that's Jean-Luc Picard, the captain of the Enterprise, D&E. And, you know, uh, the, the, the the he helped with the Klingon succession and all that stuff. You know, Rios knows who um, Picard is. And now I'm looking at Dan Garcia's lovely face because Barry's Canadian Internet apparently dropped. Oh, there he is. Good. <laughs> First drop of the night, everybody. In the First EDA- drop. Perfect. First drop of the night, kids. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, there'll probably be more. It's Canada. Was I talking or were you? I can't I was. remember. I, I was okay. I was, I was talking about Rios, and I, I think I do think that Rios enjoys the fact that he's got not just anybody that, that was superior on the bridge, but especially Jean-Luc Picard, quite honestly. Yeah. Yeah. It's like having a, you know, starting a starting a farm league and then all of a sudden a very, very famous sports person at some sports ball game shows up and wants to play. Yeah. So, no, it is it is really good. Um, The Federation has failed you. And you'd mentioned that with Rios. And I want to just kind of delve into that. I think Picard is right in saying this, that the Federation has failed the Romulans. He failed Rios. Picard failed Rios. But I think more than anyone Picard didn't fail anyone but himself, not by his inability to rescue Romulans, uh, the Romulans or people from Remus, but more that he thought he could do it and not fail. And I mean, that's the first mistake, right? Heroes often fail. And it was the Federation that failed in the entire in the entire um, debacle that was, you know, the synth attack and then this reaction of pulling all their ships out when Romulus was in mortal and existential danger. If it was an attack by some eat secret enemy organization, that still shows that Starfleet was incompetent uh, in a lot of ways, I think, and gave way to hateful, um, you know, hateful and 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 fearful you know, beliefs and stuff like that. But if this comes actually from Starfleet itself, I mean, that's a terminal problem, I think, with the entire, um, with the entire sort of concept of what Starfleet is. And also I would say this really raises questions now about Riker, Troy, Worf, Crusher. Are they still members of Starfleet? Are they still alive? All of those big questions. So, Bill, I've just thrown you a big word salad. Um, Make sense of it. And then we can uh, see what the folks say. I, I do think Picard has failed more than himself. And I think that this is part of the brilliance of this series. You know, uh, prior to this, Starfleet captains, you know, were the be all end all. They were the pinnacle, especially Picard. He was the ultimate white hat. And although he hasn't intentionally done anything wrong, um, it, it is as as Jackie points out in chat, you fail when you stop trying. And that's what Picard did. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, he, he not only stopped trying with trying to resettle the Romulans and to get them evacuated, he also failed with Rafi and that was a huge failure on his part. He had, he had a responsibility, you know, uh, she was in that boat because of him and he didn't need to get her out of it. But as a human, as a friend, he should have said, Hey, how are you doing? Are you okay? Um, so I think that Picard is dealing with a variety of failures because uh, as he said, you know, he, he didn't, he went home to essentially live out the rest of his life and didn't um, go home to keep living to paraphrase. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. that, that's kind of how I, I do think he's made multiple failures, not in addition to himself, but he's made a couple of significant ones that he's having to come to terms with. And he's not been in that position before. 
No. And, and Becky kind of echoes that. Uh, she says here, I agree that the Federation failed, but I think Picard failed to follow up even as a private civilian. And Kirk did the same thing. And yeah, it is that kind of idea of once their wings are clipped, they just, uh, they don't even sing anymore. Um, it's, it's very sad to see in that respect. So yeah, that's, uh, that's definitely something I, I want to just uh, bring up another thing here. Jonathan Hamilton, I don't know if we've seen you before, so welcome to the show. And if not, well, he says here, I've had moments in life where I couldn't accomplish exactly what I wanted and so gave up on the whole venture. It's a human failing and Picard is only human. Absolutely. And and for us to be able to draw that back, I mean, that's that's the joy of Star Trek to be able to see that in ourselves. And this is Picard's redemption story as much as I think it's Starfleet's redemption story as well. Um Another big one that I really like is the idea of character uh, <laughs> character interplay. Um, the idea that they got all of these other characters up and running before dropping Jerry Ryan into uh, the mix. I think she and Picard would have stolen the show pretty bad. What do you think? Uh, I, I think so, although I don't think they were ever going to let Jerry Ryan steal the show, honestly. You figure she's listed as a special guest star. She's not listed as a, you know, a, an additional regular. I think we'll probably see her in a couple of episodes. But you know, this is a show where they can take the time to introduce those characters. And I, I think they're doing the right thing. Um, even introducing Hugh before this, I think that that made great sense. Um, and we're waiting a while to see Riker and Troy too. So I'm, I'm all set with that. So I don't know that it would have been that big a distraction from the rest of the crew, but I, I think they did it, uh, about as well as they could have. All right. Well, I'm noticing I'm getting a little laggy there, Bill. I'm just going to ask you, um, if, uh, if I'm okay here, I'm just noticing things are lagging out. If I drop the EBH will pop back in and we'll be good to go. It, I think it's this point that I want to uh, just take a, take a second here for everybody and uh, just talk a little bit about our wonderful sponsors and Trek family at Fansets. Uh, there are many ways to express your fandom, but if you're looking for artistry, care, and attention to detail and a customer service, you won't find it better anyone better than the people at Fansets. They have some fantastic brand new pins. Bin, Bill, I believe, is sporting a few as we speak right now. And I've got a number here that I'm going to hold up sort of like a little hand in cards. I've been quite enjoying them as well. You can see the ones up of number one, two there, uh, or number one as well. I have the actual ones and I was going to put them on. I was going to put the, uh, the leash one on my dog, the collar one, but I don't think I can. Yeah, there you go. There's bill and his lovely Delta, the Picard insignia. I also have the new Starfleet, uh, Delta and it is a delight to see. So, we have new Picard uh, pins coming soon as well, or they, they have new Picard uh, pins coming soon. Uh, not only will we see micro crew character pins for Soji, Dr. Gerati, Rafi, Picard, and Rios, but we just found out from fansets that they'll also be doing a line of Picard episode pins and more info on those will be coming really, really soon. So it's not just a Star Trek either, right? Fansets uh, spans all genres from Alien to DC. As an offer, though, uh, listening to Picard Live, uh, Fansets is offering a 15% discount to any order while Picard Season 1 is on. Just enter Picard Live, that is P-I-C-A-R-D-L-I-V-E, all caps, no spaces, at checkout and get 15% off your next order. So, Fansets, our pins have character. And we thank Fansets for being our presenting sponsor for the Trek Geeks Network. So, always great to see. Can I interject something on Fansets real quick? 
Yeah, sure. Uh, I want to say that uh, they do have the Picard visitor badge that you saw in episode yeah. two and this uh, this sort of mini Starfleet Delta that are available for pre-order on their website now. They'll be shipping nice. in March. But uh, you, we mentioned the, the new character pins and the episode pins that are coming. Those are all pending approval by CBS Consumer Products. So as soon as ah. CBS has greenlit those pins, they will be made available. Um, but you know they're still going through the, that final process now. But uh, I love me some some fan sets, as you can tell oh, right here. Absolutely, I agree completely. And uh, I would think that any of our friends uh, living in Anaheim should get the visitor pin and go to the convention center and see how much <laughs> how many doors it opens for them. You'd be like, hey, I'm a visitor. I think that would be lovely. So just really quick before we jump into the next segment, uh, Joseph uh, Grimes says, nice way to add seven and of nine into the storyline. I fully, fully love it. And uh, Kevin B. Coop says, hello, your video is frozen. Welcome to Canadian Internet, Kevin. It is going to be up and down. Um, basically, I'm broadcasting from just outside of deep space, like 25 or something like that. I am on the uh, edges of space, further than the Delphic, Delphic exam. Delphic Expanse. Oh, man, I couldn't even say, say that. Say that 10 times fast. Ugh. Well, you know what? I think it's time just to get into the Stargazer. What do you say? Yeah. All right. Well, what, star what the Stargazer is, is we look ahead what might lie in store for Jean-Luc. And I promise I'm going to get even more time for some uh, comments on this one. So that will be good. So firstly, the Three Musketeers story at the beginning with young Elnor and uh, Elnor and Picard as foreshadowing. Not terribly sure how this is going to manifest, but I'm guessing we are going to get some kind of pastiche of that entire scene that Picard read to Elnor. What do you say? I, I love it anytime you use the word pastiche. Um, because I host Trek Geeks and we don't ever use that word. Uh, <laughs> no, I I agree with you. I, I think that you know, Michael Shabon is an amazing writer. I mean, forget yeah. the fact that he's a Pulitzer Prize winner. The man knows how to write. Um, he has for years. And he's not going to introduce something as careless as a reference to the Three Musketeers and D'Artagnan without probably giving us something to think about later. Um, if Discovery could do it with Alice in Wonderland, I'm pretty sure that Michael Shabon is likely going to do it with the Three Musketeers. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. This is uh, this is right up his alley in terms of blending literature with science fiction. And it's something that I think Star Trek does very well. We have, we have seen, obviously, with uh, Jean-Luc and with that. But even in the past, right, we, we do... You get to see guys in, in TOS definitely living out kind of sort of different versions. I'm not going to say pastiche again because I, it got you kind of a little uh, hot and bothered <laughs> there. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is something that is characteristic Star Trek that uh, we connect our literature to uh, to sci-fi. And my hope always is that this this encourages especially young people to go and read the source material. Right? Where did where did Chabon get this great idea from? Well, it, it came from an amazing book that I think people should read. So. What a wonderful thing in that respect to uh, to get that kind of foreshadowing coming for. Now, the Sungian androids would be the other big one. It's pretty much a given that I'm thinking we've got some more lurking about in the uh, in in the alpha or beta quadrant, and uh, I'm really interested to see where that's going to go. If maybe we'll see, you know, another another set of twins or something along those lines or maybe even a twin of someone we weren't expecting who knows i think it could be pretty interesting in that respect at this point i'm wondering who's not a sung type android um right because, you know I, i'm thinking that there's probably going to be another one that 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 we don't know about you know some people think that uh, that dr gerardi is probably a romulan spy 
I think at this point she's probably an android um, because why not have her in plain sight? She's the the Earth's foremost authority on cybernetic life. Well, wouldn't the catch be she was cybernetic life? So that's kind of where I'm going. I don't know if it's real or not, um, but that's just the feeling I got after episode four. Mm. And just as you said that, Marina Kraft, uh, Marina Kravchuk, hey, Marina, nice to see you, um, said something really cool. Had an interesting theory, Daj Soji being Lore's daughters and not Data's. Well, they definitely have an emotional uh, element to them that Data doesn't get until much later on. So, And he could toggle his emotions, which I think is kind of entertaining, especially considering we're dealing with Romulans being absolutely candorous and then, you know, obviously linking that back to the Vulcans. So emotion, AI, spirituality, technology, and redemption, right? This is, uh, this is some pretty great ground we're covering, but I like that. Maybe they're Laura's daughters. Who knows? Uh, that's as viable a theory as anything else. I would rather see that than actually see lore. Um, I, yeah. I, I don't need to see lore, uh, but if for some reason he had, a, they had a tie to him, that would be interesting enough. Well, I mean, there's enough connective tissue there with Hugh too, right? Yeah, I suppose there is. I never thought about it like that, but, uh, but certainly that's a possibility. Um, I, I just, I think there's an, and, a sleeper Android out there other than Soji. And I think, uh, I think we're going to find out. Yeah. Well, and then the other idea Arend is is saying that maybe these are Maddox type androids and not Sungian ones. I mean, if he's been practicing for the last, what, you know, 30 years, that's possible there that he's he's perfected the program, that he's got something bigger. Well, possibly. I mean, I don't know what denotes Sung type or Maddox type. I don't know that that's ever been presented for us. Um, perhaps it just relates to, uh, I don't know, the, the positronic brain. I don't know. But yeah, sure. I'll buy that. <laughs> yeah who knows right it's uh it's it's that thing and if that's the case though debbie says you know then we are going to get a gerardi twin which Maybe. uh would would be an interesting thing in the sense that they would uh walk together and then see uh see one another i i think if they didn't know about each other that would make for some good comic relief even so yeah yeah probably oh, let's see here uh, someone here says, uh, uh, Manu, Manuf-san says, uh, Brent Spiner has said all his scenes were filmed with Patrick Stewart alone. So that's an interesting bit to, to maybe say that we might not see data at all, or maybe old Brent is uh, pulling a fast one on us. I wouldn't surprise me if, um, if that was misinformation or disinformation, because Lord knows they never do that with Kurtzman Trek. Come on. No, no, not even close. Well, I think that's the other bit here, and and it's obviously the teaser for the next episode. I think Annika or Seven, I think she's going to correct Jean-Luc pretty soon. I think she's going to want to be called Seven of Nine. Maybe she, she does. That, that's, that's an up and down, but I'm pretty sure she's going to hold some insights on Bruce Maddox slash the uh, the whole synth kind of world. Um, obviously. And I, and I mean... It's not really a question more than a, what do you think, Bill? I hope so, though. It looks like they're going to get to go to Space Vegas. Um, is that free is, cloud? Is kind of interesting. I, I, yeah, I guess it is. Um, because, you know, you got Rios in, in that rather, you know, sort of garish purple coat with some kind of boa. And you got Picard in a beret and an eye patch. I mean, this just <laughs> screams, uh, you know, camp Star Trek, if, if nothing else does. Um, I don't, in the future, it just, it worries me that people are still wearing these things. I thought we were, we'd evolved this humanity. I guess not. Well, 
I don't know. I always liked the shiny bathrobes that they wore in TNG and would <laughs> would one hundred percent strut around in that all the time if I had the opportunity. So I want one of those now. Yeah. 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 No, you just it would be it would be wonderful. But yeah, just the the addition of Jerry Ryan, that whole scene was just fantastic. I I I know it was fan service and I am perfectly okay with that. Seeing that old Romulan warbird fly in and its old buzzy sounding phasers firing off in just two directions like TV antenna. It was uh, I mean, it would be kind of like a modern a modern day frigate being attacked by a sailboat with cannons. But uh, <laughs> you know what? If it connected, it would still do a ton of damage. So I mean, that's true. I mean, you know, there's a reason why they kept pushing them back toward the planetary defense, um, you know, yeah. to probably make them easier to shoot at. So I get it. Uh, but yeah, yeah, total fan service. But let's be honest, the appearance of seven of nine there at the very end of the episode complete and utter fan service and i'm okay with it i'm there for it absolutely yeah again i I have to say like for sound effects i've liked the music over the last few episodes quite a bit but um i'm always a sucker for really cool sound effects noise that the ship makes as it bounces off of the planetary defense shield was like eerily satisfying for me i was i played that bit over a number of times and uh you know i i that's a weird that's a weird uh admission that i've just made this this explains so much about you. I just want to yeah. throw that out there. Yeah, just the bong. It was very nice. Jackie <laughs> Hackney says that uh, Free Cloud is like uh, STLV in Space Vegas. Um, I think I think we can officially rename uh, STLV Free Cloud if that's the case. But uh, you know who knows. And then uh, Debbie says Free Cloud reminds her of uh, Ragnarok. Uh, yeah, maybe. I think we have that a theme be- for the fan sets party this year. Um, uh, it could be Free oh. Cloud. I'm just throwing it out there. <laughs> that would be great. Becky says that uh, she's getting a, D- a TAS shore leave sense um, because of the robots. Yeah, I, I could see that as well. It's sort of a, a bit of a shore leave. I hope it's a bit of a better episode than uh, than shore leave. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I have to agree with that. That would be a uh, as long as it's better. That's, that's all I care about. Yeah, and Jonathan Hamilton, you're absolutely right. Fan service can be great if well done, and I think it's being executed properly. My critique there would definitely be on the overusage of Earl Grey, but uh, I think they've moved past that now, and we can we can get on to some more entertaining things. The other little bit here, and and this is just Annika or Seven of Nine's purpose in the long run. I think in this case, she's done with the Federation too, and I'm hopeful maybe, and and this is maybe me just sort of kind of leaning into to what I like to see some kind of Maki like cadre of hybrid and synth individuals. I'd love to see some kind of resistance to what's uh, what's happening, especially if earth is going so anti synth. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. I think that, well, yeah, it, it kind of boggles my mind that earth has gone so anti synth and I hate even using the hmm. term synth. Um, because you know, uh, we didn't really get that in, in next gen, but, um, I, I'm, I'm concerned that, that it means that th- there's pockets of, of greater hatred potentially, uh, within Star Trek for these synth beings. It's one thing to ban them, you know, as Starfleet slash the Federation does. It's another thing to, uh, to hold a grudge. And I'm sure that there's going to be a, a, a sector, a group of people out there that do just that. And I think that's kind of what bothers me about that whole introduction of that. I think um, one piece here and, and just talking about Jerry Ryan's appearance, we knew she was coming. Um, and, and Debbie brings up something that I do, I do have to say is a bit of a critique on my end too. It bugs. She says it bugs me that there's a spoiler uh, because actors appearing in the episode 
And then on the opening credits, uh, Discovery does this too that spoiled the return of Hugh Culver uh, as well. I would agree. I think I, I, I try to avoid previews as much as I possibly can. And actually right now I'm avoiding all of the talk on Picard that's happening on like YouTube and other podcasts. Not to say that I won't catch up when it's all done. I just want to be as authentic for you all as possible. So if I'm missing something glaring that everyone else is talking about, uh, now you know why. Um, I want to actually just say here, it says, uh, Aren says, Oh, he said something earlier that I was going to check. There we are. Uh, he says, uh, I still have questions. Where did the entirety of the Romulan military go? That's a great question. Uh, with Romulus, basically the head of the snake getting cut off, I'm guessing they factioned off into warlords, different ideologies. Um, I think we just see an entirely fractured uh, once Republic. And I mean, seeing that Vashti is, you know, being, being touted as a, a place of crime and of poverty and of, you know, lack of, of, you know, what, what basic needs people would be getting. I think that's a, a pretty good articulation. I don't really think we got a good Vashti is an impoverished place very much. It, it seemed kind of like, I don't know, it, it didn't really come off as, as being in that much danger or anything or being that much dangerous. So I don't know. I don't really know what, what, what Vashti is supposed to be ultimately other than just part of the outer rim of Romulan influence and in others, they also mentioned Rangers and stuff in that area, maybe trying to keep a certain amount of peace. But I would say that the Romulan military has just sort of dissolved um, as their Republic did. Well, and Vashti was supposed to be a temporary stop on the way to somewhere else too. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, and as it turns out, these people have been there for at least 14 years. So um, mm -hmm. who knows what, where the rest of, of the Romulan citizens that survived uh, wound up maybe the military is with them maybe there's another colony somewhere yeah no definitely um it's uh, uh becky says she remembers the prejudice uh after the zindi attack and agree with bill smith about being bothered by synthetic ban and other hatreds yeah i mean human humanity has always has always dealt with its relationship with what it perceives as the other and romulans othering human beings in their anger i don't necessarily blame them but um, it's not outside of the purview of most sentient life within the Star Trek universe. And yes, um, you know, the, 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 in, the hatred of, of synthetic individuals or artificial intelligence or, um, you know, non-biological intelligences is, is a knee-jerk reaction. And I mean, data is charming and it doesn't seem like the F, um, the F droids or whatever they were, were as charming as data. But at the same time, you know... It, though they're not necessarily charming, they're still sentient and probably still feel feelings and think things and, and whatnot. And it's something that I think we're getting close to with, with the possible singularity of artificial intelligence ourselves. I don't disagree with you one bit. Um, you know, it's, it, it's, inter it's a fine line that Star Trek is walking right now. And I, I don't think it's one we're going to be on for very long. Uh, I think they're going to evolve the story into something else. Um, hopefully they write the ship and, and there is no more ban of synths by the end of, of Star Trek mm -hmm. Picard, however many seasons there are. Um, but I, I have to believe that, that, you know, that Michael Chabon and, and Kirsten Beyer and Akiva Goldsman and Alex Kurtzman introduced this for a reason. Um, perhaps this is the thing that they need to get past. Perhaps this is the ship that needs to be righted as far as futuristic society. I don't know. Yeah. Thad disagrees with me. He says that uh, it's the 20th. 24th and uh, there was very very little uh, technology on Vashti I guess they were you know cooking food on brazers and carrying swords around so it, he says it looked very impoverished to me uh, that is correct I guess so I don't know it's just 
I would have, I would have expected to see like more destitution, um, desperateness, you know, like seeing, um, you know, it, it didn't come off quite as, as bad, but then again, who am I to say one way or another, right? That's, uh, that's just kind of how it goes. Jackie Hackney talking about the the synthetic life on Mars. Uh, perhaps they were closer to B4 than Data, and that's why they weren't as human in their actions and reactions. I agree. I think that, again, though, our concept of sentient life, you know, if you created an artificial intelligence to be your friend and it decided not to be your friend, do you have the right to destroy it? You know, it's that kind of thing. And in this respect, if the synth decides something, maybe it's because it wasn't having a need fulfilled in, in some case. I often find that, that you know, antisocial, negative and violent behavior often comes from an inability to fulfill some kind of need, whether good or bad. And I wonder if, again, not programmed necessarily, but more convinced or, you know, rather than being hacked, maybe convinced to some degree to do the attack is why the synths did it. And I always go back to F8 contemplating before actually um, uh, terminating himself. Well, and we don't know that they weren't sentient. You know, we don't know that they didn't yeah. have, you know, the, the sort of free will that data had to some extent. We just mm -hmm. know what they showed us. You know, yeah. any any being that gets treated poorly for long enough is eventually going to say, I've had enough. And they're going mm -hmm. to strike back somehow, whether it's through through action or through thought or through through words um, or deed. Mm -hmm. But we assume right now that the Mars... Uh, the Utopia Planitia synthetic life force workers, for want of a better phrase, weren't uh, truly sentient, but we honestly don't know. That could have been just a cover-up until they enacted their plan. Who knows? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, Kirk Schwinn, uh, despite a, a a understandable typo, uh, says, I didn't get the sense that the Mars androids uh, were not sentient. Or, yeah, I didn't get the sense that the Mars androids were not sentient. And, and I think that's, yeah, it's hard to know. It's hard to... to address and understand sentience right like you and i are both dog owners bill and the way our dogs perceive reality through their sentience is different and we've learned how to yes. communicate in certain ways but we're never going to fully understand how a dog perceives the world i mean i think of the same thing with chickens i i grew up you know half of my family was on the farm and i never understood or or thought for a second that all those animals you know beneath my my you know beneath me or were, were clucking at each other, but they were actually like giving very essential information to one another and like planning things and doing stuff. Like it wasn't a game, like how we portray animals in cartoons and stuff like that. It's, it's much more simple, but yeah, I think, I think there's a, a conceit of sentience that we as human beings have. And I think it's going to knock us right in the nose in real life. And it's going to happen very soon. I, I agree. You know, these, these Mars workers were essentially toasters. Um, to the people who worked at Utopia Planitia. And that, yeah. that's really the horrible statement about what happened is that for beings who were considered alive, most likely, um, they weren't treated like beings who were considered alive. And that says something about us uh, in the future and today. Yeah. Jackie Hackney uh, says that we do expect sentient androids being like us, but aliens can have far more freedoms in being different. It's not really fair. I, I agree. And then uh, Becky uh, says something. She she disagrees with me. She says that she believes that the androids on Mars were hacked and not given a chance to evolve beyond the programming. Yeah, it's up to debate at this point. And I think that's uh, that's interesting. I want to add one last bit here. Debbie says, uh, but I agree they weren't as sophisticated as data. No one has been able to uh, reproduce Sung's work. Definitely. Without a doubt. I, and uh, 
I don't think, well, I, I think somebody has, and it's probably eclipsed it, but that has yet to be seen. Yeah. Uh, one last little bit here in the supplementals that I want to get into. Let's, uh, let's switch off to supplementals and then we'll, uh, we'll add some comments and, and start our, our finishing up of the show here. This has been a, a lightning conversation. I've really enjoyed what everyone's been saying and yeah, you're pretty okay too, Bill. Yeah. Thanks. Um, as a supplemental, I just want to talk about Narek and his sister. Um, I don't like their interplay. I don't like anything about their story. I'm kind of bored by them. They remind me, like I said, of villains from Sailor Moon to some degree. There's a, a you know, super baddiness and, and stuff to the sister. I, I can understand what they're trying to do. And I do not for one iota of a second fault the actors. This is possibly just a me problem. I just. Ah, it's it's a as as you would say, Bill, if someone asked me about their whole story it, right now, so far, it's a meh kind of feel to it. They're they're the Lannisters. I mean, yeah. that's, that's what it is. I'm OK with it. Um, mm-hmm. it, it. It's a little too on the nose as far as Jamie and Cersei. Um, but yeah, that's the, it's that's who they are. It's the role they're going to fill. I don't know if they're as um as gross and disgusting as jamie and cersei at times um based on their conduct but i have a feeling that it's only going to get worse um i have a feeling that that they are going to exert some power that people don't necessarily realize they have that's kind Mm -hmm. of the sense i got absolutely and uh, jackie kind of brings up the sister comes across as maybe trying a bit too hard she enjoys the story of the brother so far but together it's a bit of a meh you know, and again, like I said earlier, Narek's character is still revving his engines. I think they kind of have to almost keep him in retainer while they kind of build everyone else up and get them going. So I think there there should be um, something more of that. Yes, it's Rizzo. Rizzo is the name. Thank you. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Man of Sand, Rizzo and, uh, and, and Jamie are like, uh, sorry, Rizzo and Narek are like Jamie and Cersei, and I definitely agree with that. And, you know... I don't know. I mean, that's probably where they got the uh, the inspiration for the two characters from. But also, like, I could see this as a lot more believable as Romulans rather than Klingons or Cardassians or, you know, Bajoran or anything like that. This is definitely something you would see in the like the kind of Roman style of of leadership and stuff. You kind of get a gladiator vibe maybe a little bit there, too. Um, yeah, that's that a sense. really a great point. I hadn't considered gladiator, but as soon as you brought that up, it's it's very you know, very gladiator, like very Roman, like, but then that we're talking about Romulus and it was always patterned after ancient Rome to begin with. So it makes sense. Yeah, Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, yeah. And Rizzo, I think, uh, as Debbie says here is the assumed name that she has on earth. Uh, I'm completely blanking if she has a a Romulan name, uh, specific, specifically. If she does, we don't know it yet. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we do see a lot of blending coming from different different shows in both contemporary and otherwise. I mean, Star Trek, the original Star Trek way back in the day with Gene Roddenberry, obviously he was pulling ideas from other shows uh, and stuff like that. I mean, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. And I think this series in its short run is going to try to touch on a lot of elements and relationships and obviously sometimes we're going to see the connective tissue um, between them all. And I think that that's, you know, we're, we're not reinventing the wheel here. I think we are trying to tell a story and there are certain elements that uh, just because everything has to be connected and it's not episodic anymore, everything has to be just so intricately connected. I think they wouldn't have had to lean on the brother sister story at this point if it wasn't going to be essential later. 
Well, it's it's essential to Soji. That's really what matters right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's not necessarily essential to Jean-Luc. Um, it's essential to the person Jean-Luc is looking for, and it, it poses a greater threat. So I, mm-hmm. I think they're taking the time with that to tell it um, uh, the way it ought to be told, I hope. Um, I don't think it's just, a, I don't think they're just treading water. No, no. Uh, and like I said, uh, instead of treading water, I was saying kind of revving the engine, right? Like there's a, there's going to be something. And the more, the more we get this kind of tension building between uh, Narek and his sister, where I think we're going to see more of an explosion. And I think he's going to have to make a decision on whose side he's on. If I think he truly loves Soji. I think he is truly falling in love with her. I think she's too charming of a character to be ignored. And I think even though he may be some kind of, you know, Jat Vash or, or, or Tal Shiar or whatever, he's, I think he's smitten personally. At some point, Soji is going to be activated. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I am curious to see what happens to whom at that point. <laughs> Well, maybe she activates and she like learns how to play the guitar really well and like makes him a love song or something. <laughs> or right? maybe like, she can learn to play the ukulele and and come teach yeah, me. Yeah. So, well, if you get if you get well, then we can assume that you've been activated and you must be destroyed immediately by Romulan biker gang. Uh, looks like I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's see what we have left here for uh, any of the final comments before we end off everything here. Um, let's see, Jonathan Howells and so- Soji's little data head moment was perfect. Yeah, yeah, she she does a couple of those little uh, head tilts um, here and there, which I thought was pretty entertaining and good. Um, yeah, maybe Soji will activate and just take the sister out immediately. I think that ooh, that would be really cool. Is if 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 she activates right when the sister tries to uh, go behind Narek's back or something. Though I don't think it would last long for poor Rizzo in that respect. Probably um, not. No. no, not so much. Well, I think uh, I think that is where we can uh, we can call it a evening. Thank you so much, Bill, for coming on. We really do appreciate you. Uh, you coming on and and giving your two cents on some of these things. I do like the discussion format, like monologues and directly talking with some of the uh, fine folks on the comment board here. You all are wonderful as well and make this show what it is. So um, yes, in the meantime, for more great Star Trek uh, discussion, um, you can check out our other podcasts on the Trek Geek Network found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or even trekgeeks.com. Obviously, next week on Picard Live, we will consider the fifth episode, Star Trek Picard, uh, called Stardust City Rag, where, yes, Picard will be wearing an eye patch. So that's an entertaining possibility. Our uh, latest Trek Geeks episode that's just come out uh, was a see it or skip it after a 14-month break focusing on Star Trek Voyager Season 2, which I have not heard yet. But uh, I do believe you had Debbie on the show. Oh, was it? We was did, it? moderated by the uh, the lovely and talented Debbie Moltisanti, who uh, who managed to rein in the chaos. I imagine that we were dealing with us was worse than dealing with the individuals in her stated profession. So I, I, yeah, no, she's uh, she is a a pillar of uh, of reason and a wonderful leader for your theater skippets. And I always loved her her. Um, she would do those uh, Google Google polls as yeah, well, which poll. I've always really enjoyed. That's that's fantastic. I missed the last one, which I'm kind of kicking myself. Way to go, but. Barry. Yeah. So if you can't uh, attend the live stream on any given week, fret not. You can download the audio version on this podcast the next day. Just search for Trek Geeks Picard Live. 
on your favorite podcasting uh, platform. Obviously, we want to give a shout out to Fansets. They're fantastic and we love them. And we also want to give a shout out to the fine gentlemen in Five Year Mission who have a podcast on the network and supply the music for the majority of uh, the shows, I believe. I think it's still in majority, but uh, always love always love hearing the sweet, sweet tunes of Five Year Mission. So check them out and check out all of their work and get all of their work and get their album signed and all that great stuff. So with that, I think we... Uh, We've had a great time. I'm going to end off here with Phil uh, Huffman saying that Debbie did a great job on the Trek Geek Theater Skip It episode. So once you're done with this, pop on there. I don't think there's a Super Bowl or Oscars this uh, this Sunday night, so you can definitely have the time to do it. So I think with that, uh, we will sign off and uh, live long and prosper. And until next week, thanks very much and enjoy Picard episode five on Thursday. This is Barry signing off. Thank you.